the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And he called us for the holy calling, guys. This is not just a, any calling in life. Well, you know, you know, I, I want to be a professional of this, or I, I, wa- I want to, you know, you know, make this so much amount of money. This is a holy calling that we have in Christ. Because it wasn't according to our works, but it was according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Praise to the God who reigns above. But you be a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel. Listen, Timothy, you might pay a price for what you teach. You might pay a price for what you stand for. You might pay a price for what you do and how you live. And descends in perfect love. Don't shy from that. Be a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel and do it by God's power, according to the power of God. Why? Because he's the one who saved us. God had a plan for us. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Exodus. Exodus is the book preceding Genesis. We left the children of Israel dwelling in Egypt, making it a home after the death of Jacob and Joseph. They lived there for hundreds of years. Last we saw in Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh grew worried that the large population of Israelites in Egypt would grow strong and overthrow the Egyptian kingdom. So Pharaoh ordered that the male children of the Israelites, three years and younger, to be killed. When the midwives of Egypt didn't kill the newborn Israelite children, Pharaoh sent taskmasters to grab the children and throw them into the Nile River to die. It is here we pick up at Exodus chapter 2, verse 1. As we introduced the book of Exodus, and we went through chapter 1 last week, we saw how it's a continuation of the book of Genesis. And so probably an obvious question is, well, why isn't it just, you know, Genesis 51 and Genesis 52? And why isn't, why isn't it all just Genesis? You know, and the reason it doesn't do that, but it starts a new book, is because Exodus propels us from Israel, Israel's past to its present. We saw that last week. It propels us from the promises that God made to their forefathers to the promises now that God makes to them. Uh, and concerning those promises to the forefathers, we saw last week that God kept them. He kept them. He did exactly what he said, uh, told Abraham he would do. Your, your descendants are going to go down into Egypt, and there they will be in bondage for 400 years, but I will bring them up out. And so they're right smack dab in the middle of what God said he would do with Abraham's descendants. And so even though this is exactly what God said would happen, as you can know if you've ever gone through difficult times, Sometimes when you're in the middle of those hard times, it's hard to see how God is keeping his promises, isn't it? It's hard to see, God, how are, what are you working? How are you doing things here right now? And, and when Pharaoh gave the edict to kill every Hebrew boy from this point on at the end of chapter 1, it would have been very easy for someone to, uh, to see how someone would wonder how there could be even a God at all. God, God, you made promises, you love us, you care about us, this is awful. This is the worst it could ever be. Well, as we look at the birth of Moses in chapter 2 tonight, we'll see how his parents did not forget to look up, 
even when they saw all this madness around them. And might we learn to do the same. So chapter 2, we are actually not going to do the whole chapter. We're just going to do the first 10 verses tonight. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 1. And there went a man of the house of Levi, and he took to wife a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him, that he was a goodly child, she hid him for three months. And when she could not longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes, daubed it with slime and with pitch, and put the child therein. And she laid it in the flags by the river's bank. And the sister stood afar off to see what would be done to him. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river. And her maidens walked along by the riverside. And when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. When she had opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the babe wept. And she had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Well, then has said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call to you a nurse of the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the maid went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give you your wages. And the woman took the child and nursed it. The child grew, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she called his name Moses, for she said, because I drew him out of the water. We start the story off in the midst of this horrible situation where if you're going to get pregnant and there's a chance, you know, obviously you don't know what it's going to be. They didn't have sonograms like we have. And it's a boy. You're going to have to, as soon as that child's born, throw him into the Nile River alive. Just throw him in there and he'll drown to death. And into the midst of that, we're going to see the faith of two individuals that really blow me away. It starts off and we're introduced to a man of the house of Levi. His name is Amram, Moses' father. And when it says here that there went a man of the house of Levi, anytime you use this word, it, it means there's purpose involved, to go with purpose, there's intent. And so our story begins with Abraham, Amram, Amram and then his wife, whose name is Jochebed, the parents of Moses. Now, Moses is not their firstborn. He has an older brother named Aaron, and a sister named Miriam, who is even older. And they were born before the edict of Pharaoh was given. The went here, he went a man of his house of Levi and took a wife. The went refers more to their conception of Moses. The went skips right to Moses, and it shows that while they'd been married for quite some time before his birth, his birth was not a mistake. It was not an oops. It was like, well, I hope we don't get pregnant, or we're trying not to get pregnant. No, there was a purposeful part here of this course of action that they got pregnant. Amram acted in his marriage with full knowledge of what the consequences might be. Now, either he didn't care about the consequences and he just planned to chuck the child into the river when he was born, or there was some other principle that was governing his life that superseded the Egyptian edict of Pharaoh. Now, Hebrews 11.23 gives us the answer. Hebrews 11.23 Hebrews 11 is this hall of faith, and we've been referencing it quite a bit throughout the book of Genesis, and now in Exodus we'll do the same, as we're going to look at, you know, the faith of Moses' parents here, and then later the faith of Moses. Well, it says here in verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hid three months by his parents, because they saw that he was a proper child, or a beautiful child, but then it also explains the, the other reason behind it, and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. One thing that we will learn as we go throughout the book of Exodus is that during their 400-year stay in Egypt, 
Jacob's descendants forgot the Lord. They forgot the Lord. In fact, when Moses is out in the desert and he sees the burning bush and God commissions him to go to the people of Israel and to tell them that God is going to set them free, he says, listen, they don't know who you are. Who do I tell them? What name do I give for the God that has sent me to do this? And he says to him, tell them, Jehovah, I am that I am, has sent you. And so they had forgotten about the Lord. They had adopted the Egyptians' moral code, their societal practices, and even their idol worship. And yet God always had, as he always does, a faithful remnant. Amram and Jochebed were part of that faithful remnant. They trusted God by defying the edict, even though they didn't know how God would take care of them and any male children that they might have in their marriage. I bring this up because as our government grows more corrupt and more overreaching, there is a temptation to become fearful. Fear can lead to one of two things. There are a lot of people within the church, particularly larger influential churches, who feel a pressure to compromise. We don't want to upset the apple cart. We want the government all in our business. And so there's this pressure. We're going to change the language. In other countries, you can see the pressure that many of these pastors are under to watch how they word things because they know that they can be put in jail if they say certain things publicly. So there's the temptation to compromise. The other temptation, of course, is just to give up hope. No hope. No hope. We're not coming back for the brink. There's no way that God can, can save us from this. We've just gone too far. But you know, Timothy, a young pastor living in a corrupt city of Ephesus, pastoring in a corrupt city of Ephesus, under a corrupt Roman government, a far more overreaching government than ours, these are the words that he said to him as we read in our scripture reading. He said, Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. See, we don't have to be overcome by the circumstances that we see around us. We have power to overcome those things. We don't have to live in fear of people or governments or whatever. We can walk in love. We can still treat people the way they're supposed to be treated, the way Jesus treated them, even in the midst of a fearful society and of a sound mind. We don't have to be walking around in panic because of what the government might do or what the culture might do. He urged Timothy to not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But you be a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel. Listen, Timothy, you might pay a price for what you teach. You might pay a price for what you stand for. You might pay a price for what you do and how you live. Don't shy from that. Be a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel and do it by God's power, according to the power of God. Why? Because he's the one who saved us. And he called us with a holy calling, guys. This is not just a, any calling in life. Well, you know, you know I, I want to be a professional of this, or I, I, I want to you know, you know, make this a much amount of money. This is a holy calling that we have in Christ. Because it wasn't according to our works, but it was according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began. God had a plan for us. And you know what? What's the worst thing they can do to you? They did it to Paul. If we believe the traditions, they did it to Timothy. They took their lives. But in a sense, they didn't. Because Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he is dead, yet shall he live. He that believes in me shall never die. Never die. We have immortality in him. And we don't have to be afraid. Listen, if this couple could put fear away and trust God for the well-being of their family under the Egyptian government... 
knowing that because they knew that God loved them and he had a plan for their life before time began. That I was taught, I said, you are, you are indestructible until it's your time to go. And really, if it's your time to go, do you want to stay any longer? No way. Make it quick, but get me out of here. If they could trust God, put fear away, shouldn't we do the same? It says that the woman conceived, verse 2. So we see Amram's faith, but now we see Jochebed's faith. She conceived and she bare a son. Now she's supposed to throw him into the Nile. But it says here, when she saw him, that he was a goodly child, she hid him for three months. Now, again, goodly is that same word, proper in the New Testament. It means beautiful or well-favored. Now, childbirth was very difficult back then. Infant mortality and injury during birth was a common problem. A child born without defects was considered a sign of the God's favor. Now, Moses, being a cute baby, didn't change his parents' plans for murdering him. You know, it's not like he said, honey, I need to put him in the river. And she's like, yeah, but he's cute. Oh, okay, we won't. That, that's, not, that's not what this means here, okay? Uh, you know, if he's ugly, yeah, go for it. You know, but no, that, that's not. I don't think that's what, they didn't change their plans to murdering their child to defying Pharaoh. But seeing the beauty of, of what a child is, the wonder of, a, of this baby, it awakened and reaffirmed that what they had done in trusting God was the right thing to do and they were going to continue to do it. It awakened that natural parental love that seeks to nourish, provide for, and protect that child above all else. And so it says that for three months she hid him. For three months she defied Pharaoh and his edict by concealing his existence. But you know what? Those babies grow pretty quick, don't they? And you can't do that forever. They had to confront the issue eventually. So in verse 3 it says, when she could no longer hide him. It means to be capable. She no longer had the capability to hide him. She no longer had the ability to beat Pharaoh's edict by getting around it. The word there also means to prevail or be victorious. We don't know the details, but at this time it became clear that she could no longer win this fight against Pharaoh by trying to conceal Moses' existence. Now, Jochebed has a few options. She could have given up in despair and just waited for the inevitable. That's never a good idea. Or she could have faced the confrontation and trusted God for a miracle. Sometimes that's God's plan. Sometimes we know that we're facing a situation. We go, there's no way this happens unless God comes through. And we, the Lord says, I want you to go. For example, Moses, when they were to get to the Red Sea later on, and you got the Egyptians behind you, two mountains next to you, and the Red Sea in front of you, what are you going to do? You'll go, God, what do we do? And he said, get up. Stand still and see the salvation of our God. Put the rod in there and boom, you know, the, the water parted. It would have been very easy for him to have an intellectual disagreement with God. God, I, I'm, not a, I'm not an unintelligent man. I've been brought up through the Egyptian educational system. I'm fully aware that rods don't just make oceans depart. You know, he could have had that, but he didn't. He, he said, you know what? This is going to take a miracle. And he put that thing in the water and God did his thing. He did a miracle. So sometimes we need to confront the problem head on face the confrontation, and trust God for a miracle. Third option is she could commit Moses into God's hands, realizing that she'd done all she could do. And that is also sometimes God's plans. I've had people say, what are you going to do about this? And I said, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to trust the Lord. I'm going to leave it in his hands because at this point, I've done all I can do. And that is okay sometimes. That's not doing nothing. That's trusting God. That's an active thing. And so... That is the plan that she decided on. Now, the Egyptians killed the Hebrew children by throwing them into the river. Remember, originally, the command was to the handmaids to drown them in the washing bin. 
So instead of waiting for that to happen, she decided to provide as much safety for him on the river as she could and then let him go. It says that she took for him an ark of bulrushes, a small cradle or box, and daubed it with slime and, and with pitch to make it waterproof and put the child therein. And then she laid it in the flags by the river's brink, in the, in the reeds right on the edge of the river. Okay, Now, if any of us did that, it would be called child abuse and abandonment, and they would be right to say so. Unfortunately, though, critics of the Bible often make the same accusation against Jochebed. There's a few things to consider, though. First off, she's not a fed-up-with-the-kid's mom or a selfish mom who just wants her single life back. Okay, She's not running away from her home and family because she can't take the stress. The government is coming to murder her child, and she has no way of hiding him anymore. She is not abandoning her child. She is helping her child escape and giving him the best chance at life. That's the first thing. Secondly, the child isn't abandoned. He isn't alone. His older sister Miriam, verse 4, and his sister stood afar off to wit or to know or see what would be done to him. His older sister Miriam is sent to keep a close eye on him. Jochebed doesn't take this thing and, you know, kick it out in the middle of the river and be like, I hope you can swim well, Miriam. She puts it right on the edge with the reeds and the, the flagons there. I mean, this thing is not going to move quickly. Miriam is going to be able to keep up with it to, to, you know, among the reeds. And if the ark gets into trouble, she'd be right there to ensure its safety. I also imagine that if somebody found the baby and said, oh, look, it's a Hebrew child. Let's watch it drown and throw it into the river, that she could have gone into the water and grabbed him up and then come back home and go, that didn't work, mom, you know, and let's try something else. So there is no abandonment going on here. Now, I don't know how the family came up with this plan, as it doesn't mention prayer or God's direction or any of those conversations. But there was not a single ounce of wrongdoing in what they did. Really, the only danger that Moses was in was the danger that already existed, (laughs) that the Egyptians were coming to kill him. However, they figured that out in their minds. It was God's plan. Verse 5. And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river, and her maidens walked along by the river's side. And when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. Now, why is Pharaoh's daughter down in the Nile? Well, the Nile was considered a sacred stream, particularly where it flowed near the temple. And while it's true that only the lowest in social status of women bathed in the Nile, women didn't just go for a bath in the Nile, There was a custom in ancient Egypt where noble Egyptian women would bathe in the river with four female attendants in order to be infused with the river's sacred life-giving power. In fact, the word here for wash is not for a bath, but it's a ritual cleansing. As such, most believe that's what was going on here. This was not a bath time. This was not a water party with her you know, attendants. This was a religious ceremony where the area had probably been cordoned off and reserved for her use alone. In fact, if that's the case, it would have been very normal after the ceremony was over for Pharaoh's daughter to be looking for a miracle or sign to confirm the Nile's favor upon her that it had indeed given her this life-giving power. So here we got this woman who's going down into a religious ceremony where they stepping into the womb of a god, so to speak, you know, the, the, the sacredness of the Nile River. And as she's finished her ritual cleansing and whatnot, she's now looking for a sign that the Nile has blessed her. And into that situation and ceremony floats what? This little tiny box out of nowhere. <laughs> you, know, say, you know, show me a sign that, that you have infused me with power. And, you know, a little tiny box comes rolling down the river, you know. And so she sends, I mean, 
She's thinking, oh, yeah, this, this is it. This is a sign indeed. And so she sends her maiden, go get that thing. Find out what's in it. And so her maiden goes to fetch it and brings it to her. Verse 6. And when she had opened it, she saw the child. And then my Bible has a colon there. The colon afterward indicates an indefinite period of time takes place. We don't know how long she looked at the baby. I can't imagine that's what she expected to see. But she's looking and she's like, there's a baby in here. What does this mean? What sign is this? She may have even just stared at the baby and thought, this is it. This is my sign. Some have suggested that's pretty much what prompted her to become the child's mother, to become Moses' mother, because, well, if the Nile blessed you with a kid, you don't give it back. But either way, the Bible tells us the real reason is that she was moved with compassion. For it says, the baby started to cry. (laughs) When she saw the child, behold, the baby wept. Now, people say there isn't a difference between men and women. To that I say, you need to take a science class. But beyond the obvious differences between men and women on the outside, we are wired very differently on the inside too. When a child cries because I like kids, there's a sense of compassion in my heart. Oh, what's going on? Unless it goes on for a long time and then I'm like, somebody take care of that. Now, when one of my children cries and he has, or she has a good reason for crying, my heart is moved. When they're crying from a bad attitude, I'm not moved at all. There's no internal thing inside of me that goes, aw. I look at that and I'm like, what is your problem? You know, and I do that. You know, I have three boys. And my first two boys, you know, we would do that. They start crying. No, no, no. No, no, no. There's no crying. We're talking about something. And, and, and okay, okay, we'll talk. Then I had a baby girl. We can go from zero to 90 in less than a second. So what's wrong with you? I'm like, whoa, whoa, time out. I, I haven't even had a chance to get prepared for all these emotions. The same is not true for a woman, though, especially a mother. The sound of a child crying, particularly an infant, affects a hormone in a woman called oxy... It's either tocin or tocin. I think it's tocin. Also known as the cuddle hormone. It's count surges following childbirth. And here's how it affects a woman. It affects a woman by turning up the volume of social information processed in her brain. So a child crying in another room feels like it's right next to you. And there's this surge inside of you that I must do something. I must help crying baby. I can't tell you how many times we've been in a restaurant and there's a child crying somewhere near and it's going on and on. I'm just thinking, oh man, I, we need to finish eating and go. You know, and Beth's just going, you know, you know, she's, she's just, you know, you, you get see, she's on the edge of her seat. Someone help the child, you know? And I, I'm thinking, you know, I, I heard him, man. He had an attitude, you know? What's wrong with you? Why do you feel bad for him? You know, he's getting what he deserved. So it is very possible that God used the crying baby to affect her emotionally by bringing out those nurturing elements that God has placed within a woman. Uh, But whatever the influences were, the Bible is clear that she made a choice upon seeing him cry. For it says she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Now, the word compassion here, it means to show mercy, but specifically it means to spare That she knew this child was slated for execution is clear by her declaration of who he was, his heritage. He's a Hebrew child. And she makes a choice to spare him. She had pity upon him, and she chose to spare him. Now, we know precious little about this woman, very little. 
Acts 7.21 says she raised him as her own son, but Acts 7.22 shows that raising him also included a full Egyptian education, which meant that would have included their pagan religious beliefs and practices. We have no indication that she was a believer in Jehovah. Hebrews 11.24 tells us that there came a time when Moses had to make a choice between being her son or joining his people, and he chose his people, leaving her behind. So we have no indication that she ever espoused his beliefs. You know, I, I think in one of the movies she ends up coming with him or something. I don't know, you know, this silly stuff. However her life ended up in regards to faith, we don't know. But she made the right choice here by showing mercy. There are times in our lives when God brings someone into our life that needs to be shown mercy. And, and is that a choice you need to make tonight? You know, is there someone God has brought into your life right now that needs to be shown mercy? Other people have written off, or maybe they've just wronged other people and they've deserved what they've gotten in that sense of lack of trust and lack of involvement. And God's calling you to be merciful to them, to saying, I want you to reach out to them. No, they don't deserve it, but I want you to spare them that. I want you to pity them and show them my love. You know, Matthew 5, 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. I don't know about you, but I need a lot of mercy. (laughs) I need a lot of mercy, so I try to show a lot of mercy. God desires for us to be a people of mercy. Mercy is not giving someone what they deserve. We all deserve death and abandonment because of our sin. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love for us, died for our sins so that we wouldn't have to get what we deserve. This is how we should live towards others. But if you have questions or would like prayer concerning this or for anything at all, please reach out to us. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.